Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. We're going to be looking at this text to illustrate the intercessory work of the Lord Jesus. It's a very familiar text to us. It is a passage in which the personification of evil, Satan himself, asks the Lord that his disciples, and Peter specifically, be handed over to him that he might sift them as wheat, shaking, if it were, the faith right out of them. And this is a frightful thought. The accuser of the brethren, the enemy of our souls, Beelzebul, the God of this world, asking the Lord that he might have you to sift you as wheat. And this thought should cause even the most resolute among us to take pause, but Contrasted against this horrible request by the devil is a most comforting truth for Peter and indeed for all of God's people. As Christ will say to Peter, yes, Satan has demanded to have you, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The praying Savior interceding on behalf of his own to preserve their faith, this should be a truth that comforts every true believer. And what makes this so comforting is the fact that we can be sure the prayers of Jesus will be answered. Pleading the merits of his own blood and of his own righteousness, the sufficiency, as it were, of his own life and death, the Lord Jesus prays that our faith may not fail. Yes, we, like Peter, we will fall. But if we are in Christ, we will not be cast headlong. Christ's prayers will preserve you. Your faith will not fail. Christ's prayers will ensure your repentance, and they will even ensure your future usefulness in the kingdom of God. Despite the best efforts of the prince of darkness, his fiery darts will not destroy you. And in the final analysis, those fiery darts will actually be seen as the very instruments used of God to shape you more into the likeness of his Son. So for those of us who are in Christ, I pray that we would contemplate more often and with more thankfulness, the intercessory work of our Lord, the effectual prayers of Jesus Christ. That we would look at Jesus as our praying Savior and be moved both in our affections, but also in our actions. That though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for Christ is with us. He's praying for us, that our faith may not fail. And for those who are outside of Christ... I pray that God would open your eyes to see the dreadful reality of being without a great high priest, of being without an advocate in heaven. Not only are you unprotected from the schemes and the devices of Satan in this life, but more concerning, the wrath of a holy and just God abides on you even now in this place. So may God be pleased to give you ears to hear from him as we open his word. So I would encourage you to think on these things as we read our text. But before we begin, let me pray and ask for God's help and blessing. Oh, Father, I come to you in much weakness, not in my own strength, but in the righteousness of Christ, pleading his merits, asking that you would pour out the Holy Spirit upon us that you would pour the Holy Spirit out upon me as I'm preaching, upon your people as they hear. And Lord, that you might be merciful and pour the Holy Spirit out on those who do not yet know you, that they may be given eyes to see, ears to hear, that they might turn and be healed. Father, would you bless your word to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. Hear the word of God. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, The rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Amen. Well, it's worth noting the immediate context of this dialogue between Peter 
and the Lord Jesus. And to understand this as fully as we can, it's helpful to compare Luke's account of the Last Supper with the other gospel writers. And so the setting that we find ourselves in, of course, is the upper room on the eve of Christ's suffering and death. The disciples, having been instructed by Jesus to make ready the room for the Passover, have gathered together to celebrate with him. And as seemingly was customary with the disciples, a dispute arose amongst them. They started to argue with one another. Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So imagine the 12, those closest to the Lord, those most privileged to hear his intimate counsel and his instruction. They enter into the upper room to eat the Passover with Jesus. They look at the table and the seating arrangements, and they immediately start to argue with one another. Who's going to sit closest to Jesus? Who's going to get the places of honor? And unfortunately, that is so very typical of what we see of the disciples in the Gospels. Well, Jesus then steps in and he corrects their fleshly ambitions in verse 26 by saying, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. And then as if to model this attitude of service for the disciples, we read in John chapter 13 of how Christ takes off his outer garments. He puts a towel around his waist and he proceeds to do the unthinkable, to wash the feet of the disciples. And he says to them, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Well, the meal commences and Jesus confessing his being troubled in his spirit. He informs the disciples that one of them eating at the table is a traitor. One of them is going to betray him. And it's at this revelation that Another argument breaks out. Verse 23, and they begin to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this? Well, finally, John privately asks Jesus who was going to betray him. And Jesus replies in John chapter 13, verse 26, by saying, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And of course, we know that Judas Iscariot received the bread from the Lord Jesus, and John's gospel tells us that at this moment, Satan entered into Judas, and he went out into the night. Well, finally, Jesus takes the bread. He takes the cup. He blesses them and institutes the Lord's Supper for his church. And it is this chain of events which brings us to this point in our narrative, to this dialogue between Peter and the Lord Jesus. And I'd like to preach this text to you under three different headings. First, the Lord's warning. Secondly, the Lord's prayer. And thirdly, the Lord's prophecy. In verse 31, we see the Lord issue a warning to the disciples. Satan has desired to sift them like wheat. In verse 32, we see Christ reassure Peter that he has prayed for him, that his faith may not fail as the result of Peter's looming trial. And in verses 33 and 34, we see Peter's dismissive response to the Lord's warning and Jesus' subsequent prophecy, the foretelling of Peter's denial. So again, our headings are the Lord's warning, the Lord's prayer, and the Lord's prophecy. Starting first with the Lord's warning. We read in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Well, with Satan having already entered into Judas Iscariot, putting it into his heart to betray the Lord, Jesus now sees fit to issue a warning to the disciples. Satan is not going to be satisfied with Judas alone. His lust for the destruction of souls is unmeasurable. But Jesus He issues this group warning through their leader, the de facto head disciple, Simon Peter. And as if to grab Peter's full attention, Jesus not only calls his name twice, he uses his pre-Christian name, Simon, Simon, behold. Jesus is saying, pay attention, Peter, this is important. Don't miss this, Peter. Peter is about to receive a prophetic warning from his teacher. And although it is not going to tickle his ears, 
It is a true act of love on his part by the Lord. And friends, already there is an application sitting on the surface of the text for us. If a brother or a sister in Christ loves you enough to pull you aside and admonish you or to warn you of some sin or neglect of duty that they've observed in your life, be thankful for that person. Be thankful that the Lord loves and cares for you enough to put people in your life who will warn you and encourage you to remain on the narrow path. We would all do well to remember that the wounds of a friend are faithful. So here is Christ, the disciple's greatest and most faithful friend, loving his own by issuing a clear warning to them. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Now, we should note the you here in verse 31 is plural. It is as if Jesus had said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you all, or as we would say sometimes in Georgia, demanded to have y'all, that he might sift all of you like wheat. Simon wants all of the disciples. And friends, not much has changed in the past 2,000 years He has made a request of God to deliver the disciples into his hand that he might assault their faith and, if possible, destroy it. And what is perhaps most disturbing to me about this particular request is the timing of it. Think of where the disciples were. They were in the presence of the Lord. They had just experienced the most intimate fellowship with him, having the Lord wash their feet and having partaken of the bread and the cup, yet Satan was there. He was spying them out. Perhaps he was using the strife that broke out amongst them regarding which was the greatest as a foothold for his evil work, but regardless, he was there in the upper room. And it reminds me of what our pastor so often says to us, when the Holy Spirit is at work, unholy spirits are never far behind. And friends, we must remember this. We must not think that because we've heard a sermon that stirred our affections, or because we've been to a moving prayer meeting, or because we've partaken of the Lord's Supper ourselves, that we are somehow insulated from the attacks of Satan. On the contrary, it is often at the height of spiritual experience where the greatest attacks come. So let us beware of this, lest we make ourselves easy prey for the evil one. So Satan was there in the upper room, and he had demanded to have them. Now the word demanded here means the asking that someone be given up to someone else from the power of another. Once again, it means the asking that someone be given up to someone else from the power of another. Now, specific to our text, demanded is the asking that the apostles be given up to Satan from the power of Christ. And I appreciate how the NASB translates this. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. As a mere creature, Satan has no claim on any follower of Christ. He must receive permission from the Lord in order to get at any of us. And we see this reality play out in the Old Testament, namely in the book of Job, where Satan has to receive permission from God to so much as touch Job. And God puts clear boundaries and limitations on what Satan is allowed to do. Initially, he may assault Job's property and family, but not his person. Later, of course, God does allow Satan to attack Job's body, but he must spare his life. But each time, Satan can only operate within the boundaries set by God. It's as if God says to Satan, this far, but no further. This far, but no further. And friends, we must remember this truth, lest we fall into despair or unnecessary fear. Satan is a powerful enemy, to be sure, but... He is governed by the great sovereign of the universe. This means that God is not unaware of the trials and the temptations that we face at the hands of the devil. Remember, his decree orders all things. His providence governs all things. So we should take comfort that whatever befalls us, even the trials and temptations of Satan, that nothing befalls us by chance. 
Everything comes to us from the hand of our good, wise, just, and gracious God, and he always does what is right. And so we see that Satan has asked God for permission to have the disciples, that he might sift them like wheat. And this picture of sifting perfectly captures how Satan assaults God's people. In biblical times, once wheat was harvested and the chaff separated, farmers would use a sieve to shake the grain and to separate it from any rocks or clumps of soil that had remained attached to it during the threshing process. And the sieve was a pan that had a mesh bottom, and as the grain was shaken, the impurities would fall through the sieve, leaving only the grain on top. And this is what Satan is desiring to do to the disciples. He wants to shake them. He wants to separate, if it were possible, their faith from them and show them, just like Judas, to be frauds. That is what he desires to do. And his attacks, they have the same end today. I hate to tell you this, but Satan will settle for nothing less than your total apostasy. He wants to have you all, sure, but he also wants to have all of you. For Satan, this is not a joke. He is playing for keeps. Again, we must remember that his power is limited. He is not God. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. But what he lacks in divine qualities, he makes up for with thousands of years of human observational studies and legions of other fallen angels at his service. He knows the weaknesses and the tendencies of fallen humanity, and he is cunning. He knows how to tempt us and how to attack us where and when we are most vulnerable. Well, despite the request being made for all of the disciples in this passage, we do get the sense that having already destroyed Judas, Satan has his sights set on a more valuable prize. He wants the one who made the great confession. He wants the one to whom our Lord gave the name Rock. He wants the man who would be used of God to bring 3,000 souls into the kingdom on the day of Pentecost. He wants Simon Peter. And just a word here to those men who aspire to the office of elder or deacon, and I'm aware of what I'm saying myself. Expect Satan to allocate special attention to you. He will not stand idly by as the gospel goes forth into the world. He will not stand idly by as new disciples are made, baptized, and taught to obey all that the Lord commands. Expect intense warfare. Satan knows that if he can cause a leader in Christ's church to fall, then the sheep are more likely to be scattered. We should remember the words of Christ after he washed the feet of the disciples. A servant is not greater than his master. And if Satan demanded to have Christ to sift him as wheat after 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness without food, when our Lord was at the peak of physical weakness, we should not expect any more civility from him in regards to how he wants to deal with us. You must not, indeed all of God's people, must not presume, as Peter does in our passage, that you are not in danger of falling at the hands of the enemy. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So we've seen under our first heading, the Lord's warning. But take heart, the truth that we see next has been a source of comfort for God's people for millennia. We see next the Lord's prayer. Verse 32, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Well, I'd like to make four observations about this prayer, four subheadings, if you will. First, the prayer is offered by Jesus. Second, the prayer is for Peter specifically. Third, the prayer is for Peter's faith. And fourth, the prayer is effectual. So our first observation, the prayer is offered by Jesus. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. 
Here is Christ to the rescue, our great high priest, our mediator, again, taking action to defend his own, to rescue Peter from a situation so perilous, so dangerous, that the only way Peter could survive is by the intercession of his master. Christ, as it were, places a counterclaim on Peter. Yes, Satan has demanded you, but I, I have prayed for you, Simon, but I. And when I read this, I cannot help but think of those precious but God statements that are sprinkled throughout Scripture. For example, Noah in the ark for 150 days, witnessing the destruction of all flesh in the flood, perhaps wondering what would become of him and his family. Genesis 8.1 says, But God, but God remembered Noah. And Pastor Jerry alluded to this earlier in the public scripture reading. David hiding in the wilderness from Saul who was seeking to kill him. For Samuel tells us, and Saul sought him every day but God. But God did not give him into his hand. Or Acts 10, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God. But God raised him on the third day. And just one more. Turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Here we see perhaps the most familiar, the most comforting, but God statement in all of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What a grim, grim picture. Praise God, the text does not stop there. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But God, God doing only what he can do and stepping in to rescue his people, and do we not see that clearly illustrated in our text? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I, but I, Simon, the eternal son, the one who was in the beginning with God, the one who speaks and the winds and the waves respond in obedience, but I, the Lord Jesus Christ, Simon, I have prayed for you. All the powers of hell are no match for the prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I, I have prayed for you. Dear saints, please hear these precious words of comfort and have your fears relieved. Such care, such concern, such tenderness. This is our great high priest. This is the one who prays for us. And what a privilege it is to be secure in Christ. Well, this brings us to our second observation. The prayer is for Peter specifically. Consider the nature of the pronouns used in this verse. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And contrary to both uses of the word you in verse 31, all four uses of this pronoun in verse 32 are singular. This means that Christ is telling Peter, Satan has asked for all of you, but I have prayed for you specifically, Peter, that your faith may not fail. Now, this, of course, is not to say that the Lord neglected praying for the other disciples. We're going to see shortly after this, in the high priestly prayer, that he does just that. But we should learn from this that Christ prays for each individual believer specifically. 
And not only does he pray for each individual specifically, he prays for them according to their specific needs. Case in point, Peter's greatest need in his forthcoming trial, in this imminent sifting that is before him, is that his faith fail not. Well, Christ knows this, and he prays specifically for this need. And friends, if you are in Christ, he is praying for you in this same way. He is praying specifically for you. And indeed, if I can say this reverently, Christ's prayers for you are even more robust and more comprehensive than this prayer for Peter. Consider for a moment the context of his praying for Peter in our passage. Jesus, he knows what lies before him. He had already set his face like flint towards Jerusalem, and even now Calvary and the cross were looming ahead of him. In just a short time, Jesus would be in Gethsemane, where we read that he is greatly distressed and troubled. There he would ask the inner circle of apostles to watch and pray with him, confessing to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And it's in Gethsemane, perhaps more than anywhere else, where we see our Lord's humanity on full display. He was distressed. He was troubled. His soul was very sorrowful. As Isaiah prophesied about him, Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet, yet, considering all of this, he still had the wherewithal to pray for his friend. Despite everything that lay before him, all of the pressure he was feeling, he took time to pray for Peter, to ask the Father to preserve his faith. And he did all of this as a man, while experiencing all of the infirmities, sin accepted, that are common to human nature. So when we consider this, how much more is Christ able to pray for his people now in heaven, now that he is no longer beset by the infirmities common to humanity, now that he no longer grows tired or weary, now that he is no longer distressed or troubled, now that his soul is no longer sorrowful? Friends, we can have confidence in our ascended and exalted praying Savior. We can have confidence in the one who was appointed by God the Father as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. His priesthood is without end. Now, this not only means that it will last forever, it also means that there are no interruptions to his priestly work. Consider Paul's exhortation to pray without ceasing. There is only one person who can pray without ceasing. And that is our great high priest. So dear saint, do not withhold anything from him. The small things, the big things, the secret things, give them all to him. You can cast your cares upon him because he cares for you and because he's able to bear those burdens. He is able. Remember that exalted in heaven, Jesus ever lives to make intercession for his people. So, When you don't think that you can make it through to bedtime, moms, Jesus is praying for you. When you don't know where that next paycheck is going to come from, Jesus is praying for you. When you can't sleep at night because you're so concerned for the souls of your unbelieving children, Jesus is praying for you. When another month goes by and the pregnancy test is still negative, Jesus is praying for you. When you're lonely, Jesus is praying for you. When you have yielded again to that shameful, besetting sin, yes, even then, Jesus is praying for you. When you've had another miscarriage, Jesus is praying for you. When your name is being slandered, Jesus is praying for you. He is praying that your faith may not fail. And it is so easy for us to forget about the humanity of Jesus, but your great high priest, he knows what it feels like to be uncertain of the future. He knows what it feels like to want. He knows what it feels like to suffer loss. 
He knows what it feels like to grow tired, to be exhausted, to be abandoned by your closest friends. And it is with that common understanding and sympathy that he prays for you. He knows your heart. He knows your fears. He knows your desires. And you can trust him because he is completely trustworthy. No one who believes in him will be put to shame. So to every believer here, let me ask you a question. How often do you think of Christ praying for you? I'm not asking how much time you spend praying to him. I'm asking how much time you spend contemplating the intercessory work of the Lord Jesus. How much time do you spend reflecting on the fact that you have an advocate in heaven, a mediator at God's right hand who ever lives to make intercession for you? Does that not take your breath away? The ascended Christ, glorified in heaven, uttering your name, uttering my name, expressing our concerns before his Father 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Praying for God's people is the unique pleasure of Jesus. He always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. May God grant us grace to contemplate this beautiful reality of Christ's unending intercession more often and to take more comfort from it. Well, moving on, our third observation regards the content of the Lord's Prayer, namely for Peter's faith. Jesus did not pray that Peter would be spared all hardship, that he would not be sifted by the enemy. Instead, Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. He prayed for the preservation of Peter's faith, that special grace by which Peter and every other believer is united to the Lord Jesus Christ. He prayed that his faith would not be broken. And despite the looming assault on Peter, where his faith would be temporarily weakened, leading him to deny Christ, ultimately his faith would not be utterly destroyed. He would not be severed from Christ because Christ had prayed for him that his faith may not fail. And brothers and sisters, not only are we saved by grace through faith, we are united to Christ by faith. We live by faith. The Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the principal need for every human being alive. And if you do not have it, everything else is simply vanity. And it is for this reason that the Lord Jesus prays specifically for the preservation of Peter's faith. Again, he doesn't pray that Peter would not be sifted. In fact, the sifting of Peter was the exact means the Lord was going to use to answer this prayer, to strengthen and grow Peter's faith. And friends, there is a lesson here for us. Peter needed to be sifted. He needed to be shaken. He needed to have his pride, his self-righteousness, his arrogance, his short-sightedness, his quick temper. He needed to have all of those things fall through the sieve, as it were, leaving a more pure faith, a stronger faith in its place. And we can look at this sifting of Peter and truly say what Satan intended for evil, God intended for good. Unwittingly, and I love this, unwittingly, the accuser of the brethren is being used as an instrument of grace by the great physician of souls. And friends, the Lord uses trials and yes, the accusations and temptations of Satan in our lives in a similar way to strengthen and refine our faith, removing the impurities that exist until each one of us grow up in every way into him who is the head into Jesus Christ. And we sang about it last week, hymn 94, how firm a foundation. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume, thy gold to refine. 
Whether trials or tests of faith from God or the accusations and temptations of Satan, all are divine medicines, as it were, administered by our loving God who has in view our sanctification and our perseverance. And I know that this refining process is hard, perhaps impossible to see as it's actually happening. Especially in the midst of a storm, it becomes so difficult to keep your eyes fixed on Christ, to live by faith. And perhaps, in the midst of a trial, you begin to question whether you even have any faith at all. If this is you, let me encourage you. Christ has purchased his people with his own blood. He will not lose the inheritance for which he died. He is interceding right now in heaven, asking the Father that your faith may not fail. And with his sinless life and sacrificial death, Jesus has earned the right for his prayers to be answered. The faith of his people will not fail. And as our confession so wonderfully words it, Though many storms and floods arise and beat against the believer, yet those storms and floods shall never be able to take the believer off that foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon. We are united to Christ by faith. So Christian, take heart. Christ has prayed for you that your faith may not fail. This leads us to our fourth and final observation regarding the Lord's Prayer. It is effectual. It is effectual. We see that truth emphasized in the latter half of verse 32. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus says to Peter, when you turn, not if you turn. Of course, the word turn here means to repent, to turn back to Christ. Jesus is, of course, foreshadowing Peter's sin of denial that he's going to make explicit in verse 34. Essentially, he is saying to Peter, when you have repented of denying me, when you have once again turned and embraced me as your master, strengthen your brothers. There is no doubt in Jesus' mind that Peter will repent. It is not a matter of if, but of when. Christ's prayers are effectual. They accomplish what he intends, namely the perseverance and the ultimate salvation of his people. And there is no question as to Peter's repentance. Yes, again, he will fall. He will sin, and it's inexcusable. Peter will sin in a great and in a grievous way, but he will not be cast headlong. He will be renewed unto repentance by the uplifting power of his Savior's effectual prayers. As Peter himself will later write in his first epistle, believers are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. We are being guarded through all of life's trials and temptations against every attack of the evil one. We are being guarded by God's power through faith. And one of the principal means of this divine guarding that works through faith is our Lord's effectual prayers. Will the Father not give his beloved Son anything for which he asks? Certainly he will. We read in Psalm 2, the Father promising the Son, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Dear believer, you are Christ's. Heritage. You are his possession. He is praying effectually for you in heaven that when you go through trials and temptations, your faith may not fail. That when you sin, you will turn again to him in repentance and faith. Now we know this to be true because the Bible declares it, but I would ask you to look no further than your own sinful past as evidence of this. Simply consider the multitude of sin in your life, even since your conversion to Christ. Be honest with yourself. How is it that your faith has not failed completely and utterly? Think of the lowest, the most depressed, the most shameful moments 
that you have had as a Christian, the moments that you wouldn't dare tell your best friend about. Consider those moments. How is it that you have not become a statistic and abandoned the faith entirely? How is it that the world, your flesh, and the devil have not completely overtaken you? Friends, it is only because you have an advocate in heaven at the right hand of God who ever lives to make intercession for you. By the imputation of the blood and righteousness of Christ, you are justified. You were declared righteous in God's sight. And by his effectual prayers, you are preserved. You and me and every other true believer anywhere in this world are being upheld by the sustaining and effectual prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, when you sin, and you will, do not wallow in self-pity. Do not beat yourself up, which is so often an inferior substitute for true repentance. Instead, humbly confess your sin, plead the merits of Christ, and turn again to him to walk in new obedience, knowing that Christ is praying for you, that your faith may not fail. So we've seen thus far the Lord's warning and the Lord's prayer. Let's look lastly at the Lord's prophecy. Verses 33 and 34. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Well, in typical Peter fashion, the apostle quickly dismisses the Lord's warning. Uh, you know, thanks for the prayers and all, Jesus, but come on, it's me. It's Peter. You know me, I'm ready to go with you to prison. I'm ready to die with you. I mean, these other guys over here, there's no telling about them, but Jesus, you know me. Remember who you're talking to here. But friends, Jesus knew exactly who he was talking to. In fact, he knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. And Peter trusted himself more than he trusted Jesus. And his response to the warning shows us that. He had not yet learned that when the Lord speaks, our job is to listen, to believe, and to obey. Now, I am sure that Peter was speaking from the heart in his reply to Jesus. I am certain that he believed everything he was saying. But contrary to what our culture will tell you, your heart is not the apex of truth and goodness. In fact, the scripture tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And we think also of a conversation our Lord had with Peter where he said to him, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart? And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, and might I add, pride, unbelief. These come out of the heart, and these are what defile a person. Peter's words betrayed the pride and the unbelief that were hidden in his heart. And notice that Jesus didn't respond to Peter by saying, well, Peter, I'm really glad to hear that. You know, I was, I was certain, but you know, I felt like I had to warn you, I had to remind you, but I was, I was sure you would, you would be there with me. No, that's not what he says. Instead, Jesus once again lovingly corrects Peter. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. And friends, Jesus knows you and me better than we know ourselves. I don't say this as some sort of a threat or to scare you, but to encourage you. Because after all, isn't this one of the reasons why his prayers are so effectual? Because he knows our exact needs before we even realize that we need them. So friends, remember this truth, that Jesus knows you better than you know yourself when a brother or sister warns you of something that they see in your life. 
When a sermon convicts you, when the word of God pierces your conscience, don't cover those warnings up with false bravado. Instead, pray as the psalmist did. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Our good shepherd carries with him a rod and a staff. And we can trust him to lead us in paths of righteousness, to lead us in the way everlasting. Well, before we close, I want us to fast forward just a few hours from this conversation to the time when the Lord's prophecy concerning Peter is fulfilled. So if you will, please look down a few verses in Luke 22, down to verse 59. This is the third of Peter's denials that were foretold by Christ. Luke 22, starting in verse 59. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. While he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now you can be sure that the look our Lord gave Peter was not a look of contempt. He was not silently communicating to Peter, see, I told you so, you fool. What were you thinking? No, those eyes were full of pity, full of grace, full of love for his fallen friend. In Peter's worst moment, Christ's compassion for him is at its greatest. And I fear Too often we wrongly think of Christ only praying for us when we are on our best behavior, that he prays for us as some sort of payment for our obedience and how wrong this is to think this way. Christ perhaps especially prays for us when we are in the throes of sin, when we are engaged in abominable behavior, when we are feeling, thinking, saying, or doing evil, when we are in the very act of denying him, as it were, it is there where Christ's prayers ring loudest in heaven for his people, that their faith may not fail, that they would turn again to him in repentance and faith. And friends, when you fall, good news, Jesus can restore you. Jesus restored Peter. He can restore you. Dear saint, do you love him? Not do you love him perfectly, but do you love him? Not do you need to love him more, because certainly we do, but do you love him? If you do, Take comfort in his effectual prayers offered for you that your faith may not fail. Lastly, remember the command that Christ issues to Peter in verse 32. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. As part of the foundation of Christ's church, Peter was to model repentance and faith for both his contemporary brothers and sisters and also in God's providence to Christians in all ages. Like David before him, having been restored to God in the wake of grievous sin, Peter was now more able to teach transgressors the way of God. He was more able to lead sinners to repentance. And this same duty belongs to every one of God's people. Has grace been shown to you? Have you been upheld by the effectual prayers of Jesus Christ? Have you been renewed again unto repentance and faith? If you have, strengthen your brothers. Encourage them to resist temptation. 
Explain to them from your own experience the wickedness of sin, and above all, speak to them of the grace and mercy to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says to every true believer, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. We'll have one additional application from the text this morning. For those who are outside of Christ, for those who do not yet have a great high priest in heaven interceding for you. I admit, much of what I have said today, I have said only to Christians. When I speak of the mediatorial work of Jesus, I'm speaking only to Christians. When I speak of the faith-sustaining prayers of Jesus, I am speaking only to Christians. These promises do not apply to you if you are yet unconverted. But, Do not think that because these promises do not belong to you now, that they cannot be yours by faith. Shortly after this dialogue between Peter and Jesus, the Lord would offer up another prayer. A prayer often referred to as the high priestly prayer, the content of which can be found in full in John chapter 17. But I'd like to read a portion of this high priestly prayer to you, starting in verse 17 where Jesus is praying for his disciples, that God would sanctify them, that he would keep them and preserve them in the faith. Jesus prays to his Father, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And please hear this. Listen closely. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus is praying that not only will his father sanctify, keep, and preserve his disciples, but that he would also do the same for all those who would believe in the future through their word, through their testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. So my unbelieving friend By grace, I trust that you have heard the word of the Lord this morning, that you have heard a testimony to his saving and preserving power. And so I implore you, do not be like Judas, who heard the word of the Lord, yet hardened his heart against him. His end was destruction. Instead, turn to Christ in repentance and faith Turn to the one who cleanses you from sin, who clothes you with his righteousness and sustains your faith by the power of his heavenly prayers. If you do, Jesus promises you that your faith will not fail because he has prayed for you. Let me pray. Jesus, we praise you for humbling yourself and taking on flesh, for obeying the law of God perfectly for suffering under the due penalty of the law in the stead of your people. We praise you that on the third day you were resurrected, that you ascended to heaven, that you were exalted in heaven. And Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you ever live to make intercession for your people. Please never stop praying for us. In your precious name, amen.